This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We're here with Felipe Montero, a professor of strategy at INSEAD and a senior fellow at Wharton's Mac Institute for Innovation Management. He co-authored a fascinating case study of Tag Heuer, a luxury Swiss watchmaker with quite a storied history. The case study looks at how Tag Heuer dealt with digital disruption. And their answer is to come out with a smartwatch in collaboration with Intel and Google. Professor Montero is here to talk more about it. Thank you for joining us at Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you, Deborah. Can you tell me how you came to write this case study of Tag Heuer? So I've been studying the clusters and, right, and the Swiss watchmaking cluster practically for many, many years. So even before we start talking about the connected watches, uh, what I've been studying is how those clusters, how Switzerland is really the epicenter for the watchmaking, the luxury watchmaking in the world. And I think a few years back, I started really to wonder what would happen to the Swiss watchmaking if a new type of watch emerged. And I think at that time, maybe eight years ago, ten years ago, there was some idea of what a connected watch might look like, but nobody really knew it. And, I mean, it was very far from the the Apple Watch. Um, And I think over the years teaching it, and I started inviting uh, people from the industry, and and I started inviting Jean-Claude Bivet, who is the CEO of Tag Heuer, also he's the president of the LVMH Watch Division, to come to my classes. And a couple of years ago, really the conversation about the connected watch started really to become a, a very important one because we knew and they knew that Apple was going to launch that connected watch, and that would be a game. That would be a game changer. So it was kind of along those lines of studying for many years the Swiss watch uh, watchmaking cluster, um, and also having him as a guest speaker that um, a couple of years ago, very generously said that he would be open for us to go and and open the doors of the company for us to study and study the the launch of the connected watch. So uh, let's set the historical context first for our listeners who may not be uh, aware of the um, the the historical um, significance of the Swiss watchmaking industry. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how Tag Heuer came out of that storied history and what challenges it faced um, when Apple Watch came out and other wearables. So this is really a fascinating story because if you go back in time, Switzerland has been right the App Center, right? Really, the main cluster for luxury watchmaking for centuries. Uh, so it's not a new story. Um, it goes back, right, a couple of hundred years ago. And when we look at Switzerland, what we can see is it really has all the conditions that we want to see in a cluster. Meaning, you have the the right factor conditions, right? We have workers prepared to do it. Very specialized workers. A lot of them in the past were jewelers that really were very good at miniature, miniaturizing, so they were very good at working with the mechanical watches. Uh, we have a very sophisticated demand in Switzerland because historically Switzerland has always been a, a place where very wealthy individuals were going there for banking reasons and other reasons, so they were very demanding for what type of watches they wanted. Um, there has been a lot of competition among different watchmakers. 
Also, we have all those related industries there. So we have not only the watchmakers, but we have the right the companies who are doing the components for the watches. So Switzerland has been really this kind of very important cluster for watchmaking for many, many years. Uh, the interesting part of that story, too, is, let's say, 40 years ago, in the 70s and the 80s, Switzerland as a cluster was really threatened because with the quartz watches uh, from the U.S. and then from Japan, really the Swiss dominance in that industry was really threatened. And a lot of people at that time thought, you know, that cluster, that location, which has been really the, the main point for that industry, maybe will no longer be. And Switzerland managed really to turn it around. And there were two people. I mean, there are many people involved, but maybe when people look back, they typically say two people were really fundamental in that change. One of them is Nicolas Hayek, who was the CEO of Swatch, and who introduced Swatch, right, the, the Swiss watch, which is kind of a fashion. Uh, they, they redefined the watchmaking, really making it fashion, cheap, more provocative, not the, really the classic Swiss uh, watch. So Nicola Hayek was really important in kind of changing the industry at that time. And the other person is our kind of case protagonist, uh, Jean-Claude Bivet. Because Jean-Claude Bivet at that time, he took a very famous Swiss brand, uh, Blancpain, and he said, you know, Blancpain has existed for 300 years, and he has never done a quartz watch, and will never will, meaning... This is a mechanical watch. Switzerland is really about mechanical watch. It's really about eternity. Um, and that's what we're good at. And they really reinvented the value of the mechanical watch and really kind of managed to take Switzerland from the threat of the quartz watch and really make it the still and maintain it as the center for the watchmaking industry. But really with this focus on right, luxury watchmaking, um, very sophisticated and right, if that initial crisis, the crisis of the 70s, of the 80s with the quartz watch, uh, is a success story, and I think going back to your initial question, how I start writing the case about them, uh, so if that was a success story for the Swiss, uh, a lot of us have been wondering what's going to happen when you have a new technology as disruptive as the quartz technology was in the past. Will the Swiss, again, find a solution for it? How are they going to cope with it? And this has been a debate for many, many years. But I think since the moment we saw really uh, Apple and Apple coming with the Apple Watch and the increasing importance of the connected watch for that industry, people start asking, what are they going to do? Uh, and that's, what I think, what was a challenge for Tiger Heuer. So they clearly see – so Tiger Heuer is a, a luxury um, watch, but luxury at the entry level, right? So it is not, we're not talking about watches of $100,000. We're talking about uh, watches of a couple thousand, few thousand dollars. And the question is, what do they do? What do they do when they see uh, the emergence of the connected watch? And the emergence not only, not anymore as a very specialist niche type of, for the, the people who are really the, the tech lovers, but really when you have a company as mainstream as Apple is, they, you know, we launch the connected watch. So what should they do? So this is really was that kind of important moment, uh, and that was the main challenge that we I saw Doug Hoyer facing. So um, in in to backtrack a little bit, you know, of course, Tag Hoyer 
was very, is very proud to be Swiss made. And then they were actually faced with a dilemma of having to adopt technologies that they are not experts in and that is also came from, comes from overseas. And that's a problem for the company. But so tell me, you know, what was the fundamental choice they faced here, uh, Tag Heuer and also its uh, chief executive, um, Jean-Claude Bivet? So I think, I mean, there are at least two important choices, right? The first one is, do we enter this market or not? Uh, I mean, one choice would have been, you know, this is a completely different market. We, it's not what we do. We are really on a different part of the, or a different segment. We should not care about it. Let the consumer goods companies like Apple and Samsung take care of it. Um, so the first choice was, do we enter that market, yes or no? And I think they were pretty sure that they wanted, they wanted to enter. They say, listen, we should be there. And, and I think a lot of the rationale for that is, was we should really, and, and using their words, they say, no, we should embark on that journey. Okay? We should board on that train and see where it goes, uh, but we should be there. So that was the first choice, and I think the, the decision was, yes, we will be, we're going to board that train. The second choice is how do we do this? Uh, do, can we do this by ourselves? Can we really develop, fully develop the watch, the operating system, the microprocessor? Um, and I think they quickly arrived that they could not do it by themselves. Um, and then I think the, uh, a subsequent choice was who are we going to partner with? If we cannot do by ourselves, who are we going to partner with? And I think that comes a, a very interesting, quite innovative strategy for them was although Switzerland is a cluster for watchmaking, they soon realized that if for this segment, right, or for this conceptualization of watch as a connected watch, the technology, the expertise is not coming from Switzerland anymore. So it was critical for them to realize we need to come from our cluster, which has been kind of for centuries the, the epicenter of watchmaking, and then realize that the emergence of this new technology is not coming from that cluster, but coming from Silicon Valley. So how do we find partners in Silicon Valley that we could work with and jointly develop this new connected watch? So kind of first choice, do we enter yes or no? Uh, answer was yes. Second choice uh, was how do we do this by ourselves with partners? Uh, and they decided to go with partners. Then I think the third one was who are the right partners? And they end up choosing Intel and Google. Yeah, that's... Um... That, that's actually very interesting, too, that uh, in your case study, you say that uh, both Jean-Claude Bivet and um, one of the other executives at Tag Heuer, Guy Simon, they actually did not do any market research before deci- deciding to develop a smartwatch. What do you think about that? It is, right? You can, you, you, I think the first reaction was surprise. Say, well, how come we, we are in the digital age? where a lot of decisions are really data-driven, you have a lot of data on consumers, how come that they decide to launch that watch without any consumer research? Um, so I think the first reaction was really a surprise. I think if you think it again, um, we have to take into account first, they are really those two gentlemen, right, that you mentioned, Jean-Claude Bivet and Guy Semon, and without any exaggeration, a lot of people in that industry, okay, they would really look at them and say, these are legends in this industry. These are people who really know for decades how the industry works, who are really at the forefront 
of the industry. So, although they didn't do, they didn't do any market research per se, they were really close to understanding what are the new trends, what are the competitors doing, what's possible to do, how this industry evolved over time. So they they were in a very privileged position to make that call. So I think right, I, I would not encourage all companies to go and launch a product like this without doing market research. So I think we should appreciate how special right those leaders were in that industry of knowing so well that industry. And second, and I think this is a critical point too about what they decide to do, they really instill in that kind of very traditional kind of luxury watchmaking company, a completely different type of culture, uh, really a startup, kind of almost lean startup type of project of saying, you know, we, we would not spend years developing this project and see what happens. Instead, we're going to develop this very quickly. We're going to work with partners. We're going to launch. And if we need to make changes, we're going to make changes in the second version. So really this kind of experimentation was critical. So if you think about, right, then if you, if you look back at that question, how come that they launched the product without market research? I think we should take into account, yes, you know, um, very, very, very experienced um, leaders who knew that industry better than probably most of us. Uh, second, if you really want to have this startup culture, that you want to do this very quickly, that you want to, right, there's a, a, there was a real consideration about time to market. They didn't want to let kind of Apple run and get all the success of the connected watch by itself. Um, how, how important was to do it quickly? So I think in that trade-off, I think what they decided to do is we're going we're gonna to go ahead and we're going to launch it and we're going to make changes and we're going to do adaptations. Uh, in the future versions, but if time to market is important, we have to be there, we have to be there now, and they decide to launch. Uh, another nuance which is very interesting that right, we describe in the case, Deborah, is if you look, it was basically those two men um, behind that project. So it was not a, although Tiger Heuer belongs to LVMH, right, the Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton group, which is one of the largest, not the largest luxury group in the world, that project was really the result of the action of those two leaders. So it was much more on a startup type of project, an experiment, let's go, let's be fast, let's make sure that we can launch it, uh, let's kind of be on that train, let's partner with companies which are really fast, like Google and Intel, on the development of those new products. Um, and then we're going to make adjustments um, in the future, which actually happened in the second generation of the watch. Okay, wonderful. So um, at, at Tag Heuer, uh, one of the things is that they didn't let their legacy uh, hamper their future endeavors. And I think that's a lot of, uh, that's something that a lot of companies can relate to. So how can other businesses do the same, not let their past hamper their future? I think this is a very important question especially if you think about in, a, in today's world with all right, the digital disruption and everything that is coming, um, to what extent you realize that you have to start a new journey, in that case, you have to start a digital journey. Um, and for that, what's going to be important is how do you learn and learn fast, rather how do you continue to build on the same existing capabilities you had in the past. So I think that Right? That learning, that realization of 
that to compete in this new market with this new technology in this digital world, what would be necessary for them was really let me learn about it. Let me kind of create this agile structure. Let me create this flexible mindset of how do I learn rather than let me be building what I have done in the past. Uh, and it, it is critical. I think if they were just thinking about just building on the previous capabilities that they had, um, just manufacturing mechanical watches, they would never be able to do this. So I think it, it really required a completely change of mindset, which right, a lot of it, it isn't the way the company, right, how do you have the startup agility and, and speed, but a lot of it is really on the mindset of the leader. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to ask you what you thought about the leadership style of Jean-Claude Bivet um, because, you know, it was really his decision to pivot the company so drastically from uh, mechanical and quartz watches to to digital. Well, I think, as I was saying before, Deborah, uh, Jean-Claude Bivet is really a legend in the industry and, and if you Google his name and you see what he has done, um, there are books written about him. There are two things that caught my attention in terms of his leadership style. Um, I think the first one is you really have the impression, right, talking to him not only right, in, when, you, when you see him publicly, but in, in private conversations and talking to his team, uh, is, it is clear that he's very authentic. I mean, whatever he's saying is really the way he thinks. He's completely passionate about this industry. He's completely uh, he says that he wakes up very early in the day, he works nonstop, and this is his passion, right? He's not doing this um, to kind of provide uh, results for shareholders only, right? This is what he really loves, and, and, and I think this is contagiating. Uh, so talking to his team, talking to the people in the organization, I think this authentic passion for whatever he's doing, uh, I think was critical. I, the, thing, the second thing that caught my attention is to see how much you can reinvent yourself as a leader too, uh, and how you right you build on the past and you build on your experience, but at the same time, you are always kind of ready to learn new things and, and change and adopt this. Uh, and I think he has been very good at doing this. I mean, he says part of it is because he's he has a young son, so he's almost kind of connected to the youth and to this new generation. He's connected to the youth generation at home. Um, but also I think you see this in the company, right? You see if you really change the culture and you really bring this agile startup mentality, this entrepreneurial mentality, um, as a leader, the impact that it has. Um, and I think, you know, there are some very important kind of lessons that we can take about this. Um, as, a, right, as a leader and as a, as a general manager, I think the first one is how important it is right, to be open and to have this flexible man- mindset. Because I, right, as you look at this industry, imagine we're talking about the leaders in the world, very successful companies, companies that exist for centuries, companies right, that have some of the most admired brands, most sophisticated, really luxury. And, uh, and despite all that, they, and he was, right, and his team, they were open enough and humble enough to say, you know, I, I can see a new technology coming. Uh, I see we have been very successful in the past, but uh, we really need to partner and we really need to look, not the past of the world, 
for people who can work with us on something that we don't know. So I think this openness, this humility, this flexible mindset, I think is very important. We we typically talk about one of the traps that very good companies many times they, they fall into is this idea of having a competence trap. You are so competent on doing something that with time you just become better and better at doing that same thing. And you are never open to change. You're never open to realize when change is coming. Um, so I think it is, right, maybe he as a leader epitomizes that, him and Gizemo, but I think as a company, I think Tagahoy also embraced that very strongly, right, this idea, you know, we will not be, we will not kind of be subject to this trap of just being competent with the capabilities of the past. We're going to really learn and we're going to really um, adopt this entrepreneurial, agile uh, culture and, and processes and, and structure. And I think they they were quite successful at doing this. So, how do you see uh, other luxury brands um, tackling wearables? So this is a right, probably a billion dollar question. And um, with right, with all the, the right, IoT, Internet of Things, and uh, and all the changes we're going to have on wearables, the big question is: Is this going to be a market for the electronic consumer goods, the Apples and Samsungs of this world, or to what extent luxury brands, and you can think here about watchmakers, right, uh, jewelers, um, you can even think about, imagine the group, in the same group as Tag Heuer, right, in the Louis Vuitton group, you are going to have connected bags, Louis Vuitton connected bags, um, and I think this is opening that experience. Okay, I've, I think of seeing Tag Heuer, and then you now you also have Montblanc coming up with their connected watch, and Louis Vuitton also with the connected watch. I think it is opening the door for uh, what I see a very fruitful partnership between right the the luxury world and the technology world, because I think in that world, right, in, in that partnership, right, on that dialogue and that bridge, I think both parts have a lot to learn. Because it's clear that when we think about technology and when we think about digital technology and think about platforms and operating systems and apps, most of the actions happen in Silicon Valley. So it's really when we look at kind of Google and Facebook and right and Intel and all the companies which are in the valley, um, the novelty, the innovation is coming from there. So I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that the luxury companies have a lot to learn from what's happening in the valley, in Silicon Valley. Uh, on the other hand, do I believe that the Silicon Valley companies and the digital companies have something to learn from the luxury world? Yes, definitely. Because, you know, those companies like Tiger Heuer and Louis Vuitton and many others, over decades, they really understood very well consumer behavior and they really understood very well what, how do you really find, create this emotional connection with your consumers, uh, how status, how scarcity, how, right, this luxury experience matters to the, at the point, right, that people will pay thousands and thousands of dollars for a watch. They pay all this money not to get a device that tells you that what time is, is it. It's for something else. And I think this something else is something that uh, I believe the digital companies still have to learn. And, and and I believe, right, that maybe this case about Tag Heuer uh, launching this connected watch, partnering with Google and Intel, 
is just kind of the first one that we're going to see of a potentially very fruitful partnership between those very impressive clusters. One kind of the luxury watchmaking cluster in kind of in the very traditional Europe and Switzerland, and right and the other cluster on digital technologies, platforms, apps in Silicon Valley. We'll leave it there for now, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 